position. I don't know your ministry. I don't know your call. I don't know your gift. But I do know this. If you are called by God, if you are gifted by God, if you are a teacher or a preacher of the Word of God, and you are a pastor in the Church of God, you have a responsibility to give yourself to several crucial foundational realities. All failures of fruitlessness in ministry can often be traced to a failure to understand these basic foundational necessities of ministry. I've told you many times before, some of you have heard that chair you're sitting on has four legs. If it's got three legs, it's going to be unstable. If it has two legs, it's going to fall over. If it has no legs, no one can sit upon it. If you're going to have a ministry that is according to the Word of God, if you're going to have a ministry that clearly teaches the Word of God, if you want to establish biblical churches, if you want to see true converts, if you want to see true disciples, if you want to see true holiness, and if you want to have an influence in India, there are four or five basic foundational realities that you cannot neglect and you must emphasize in your own life and in your own ministry. I've been to many places in the world and failures of fruitlessness and ministry can be traced to a neglect or a failure and at least four very simple, crucial, important areas. Let me rehearse them and review them again as we've already heard something of these things and been here and heard me for the last six or seven years. This is old information, but it's old information for me, but I need to hear it again today. Remember what Paul told Timothy. Let's look at it again. First Timothy chapter 4, very familiar verse. We've already referenced it. And verse 16. We have it up here on the banner. Paul is exhorting Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor in the church. In verses 11 and following, he's telling a very important thing. Verse 12, he says, you must be a good example. Verse 13, he says, you must exercise a ministry of preaching and teaching the word of God. Verse 14, you are not to neglect your growth. You are to develop it and cause it to grow. Verse 15, you are to work hard, pay a price, not be lazy, and make every sacrifice necessary to serve the God. And then in verse 16, he says there's two things, two things that you are to give special attention to. And if you do so, it will have two results. Look at the verse, very familiar. He says, pay close attention. That is, make it your priority, give it your diligence, your highest calling, your first responsibility, he says, are these two things. What's the first thing he meant? Your life. Are you truly converted? Are you totally committed? Do you have a close walk with God? Are you living in the secret place with God? Are 
you a good example? Are you growing in your understanding of the Word of God? Systematic theology, biblical theology, historical theology. When we say predestination, when we say foreknowledge, when we say election, when we say justification, when we say sanctification, when we say adoption, when we talk about the church, when we talk about pastors, when we talk about the responsibility of the church, do you know what those terms mean? Do you understand it in your head? Do you believe it in your heart? Can you find it in the Word of God? And can you clearly and plainly teach truth to others? Pay close attention to yourself, your life, your example, your testimony, and your character. That's the first thing, the most important thing. And number two, and it'll produce two results. What are the two results? Look what the verse says. Number one, you save yourself. You'll get to heaven. And number two, you need to burn that verse in your brain. Your highest priority, your greatest responsibility, your highest calling, your number one purpose in mind is to know God, to walk with God, to have fellowship with God, and to glorify God. And number two, to deepen an understanding of the Word of God. Some men have right doctrine, but they don't have a consistent life, and their testimony is weak. Some men have a good life, and they're very sincere, but they don't understand right doctrine, and their influence is weak. Your life, your character, your testimony, your family, your life is to be an example, and is to be a witness to the church, and the world. You preach with your lips and you show third priority is to be able to properly interpret and clearly communicate the word of God. Second Timothy, you remember what Paul told Timothy, verse 15, be diligent to present yourself a fruit of God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of God. Listen carefully. Many men have a good life, and they have good doctrine. But they do not know how to clearly Are you called to preach? Do you have a gift to preach? Do you have an anointing to preach? So that you would know how one ought of 
must conduct himself, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. If you are called of God to be a pastor, you must have a gift to preach. You must have some gift of leadership. You must understand the nature of the biblical church, the ministry of the biblical church, the role of the biblical church, the order of the biblical church, the authority of the biblical church, the leadership of the biblical church, the qualification for the leadership in the biblical church, and the responsibilities of members in the church of God. It runs out and it must be run according to God's word. And if you are a pastor and a leader in the church, you have the responsibility to exercise a ministry of servant shepherding and of pronounced leadership as you teach the Word of God and as you lead the people of God. Life, doctrine, preaching, leadership. Most failures in men come about as a result of ignorance of or neglect of those to be growing in your own character, you're to be growing in your understanding of the Word of God, you're to be developing and exercising your spiritual gift, asking for the grace and help of God, and you must be willing to work hard and pay any price, and you must understand what is the purpose, the nature, the goal of the church, and how to encourage and move people in that direction. What is our goal? Our goal is the glory of God in and through the church of God, establishing the worship of God, edifying the people of God, and propagating the gospel of God. And if you are a pastor and a leader in the church, you lead by your words and you lead by your example. If you say one thing and do another thing, the people will be confused and they will not be able to follow. What you say and what you do must be the same thing. You tell men to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and you don't love your wife as Christ loved the church. You tell men to teach and discipline their children, but you don't teach and discipline your own children. You tell the people not to love money, but you love money. You tell people not to be angry, but you yourself are an angry man. Listen carefully. How do you influence people? By your words and by your actions. How do you lead people? By the word of God and by the testimony of your life. A man has got to have consistent character. He's got to have a growing understanding of the Word of God. He has to have a developing ability to clearly communicate the truth of God. And then he has to have a gift of servant leadership in order to pastor, shepherd, and to direct the people of God. Now, I don't know your life. I don't know your calling. I don't know your gift. I've never been in your church. I've never heard you preach. I see your face. God sees your heart. Man looks on the outside. God looks on the heart. But I can tell you based upon the authority of the Word of God, if you want to be useful, if you want the blessing of God, if you want the power of God, if you want to see true converts, if you want to establish biblical churches in India, if you want to be a true pastor, if you want to advance the truth of God, your life your doctrine, your preaching, and your church leadership are the four most important things. You understand what we're saying? But we want to talk a little bit more about life. And if God gives us time and opportunity, we'll share a little bit more tomorrow about some basic, essential 
doctrine. Any questions on what I've said thus far? You believe that? If Paul were here today, and he is here today through this book, he would say, your life, your testimony, your character, your example, your wife, your children, your witness is the first thing, the most important thing, the necessary thing. If you say one thing and live another way, your ministry is a contradiction. If you've got a good life and a good example, but you cannot open this book and clearly preach and teach and explain the Word of God as with order, explanation, illustration, and application, your ministry will not be understood. And if you don't know what the church is, and if you don't know where you're going, and you don't know how to get there, you'll just wander around in circles. Life, doctrine, preaching, leadership. That will occupy you the rest of your life. You can care for a lot of things, but if you don't guard your soul, if you don't guard the truth, if you don't clearly teach the Word of God so that even children can understand it, and you don't know where you're going in the church and what your goal is, then you will not have an effective ministry. So we want to talk a little bit more today about some basic things concerning your life. And we have one main point. The preacher must have holy character. Must have holy character. So let's just write some of this on the board because we want to be understood. We're talking about personal holiness and what we're calling progressive sanctification. I know you've heard these things before, and I've heard them before as well. But I need to hear it. The real test regarding your own life is, what does your wife say? Your wife was sitting right there. And I asked her this question. Your husband, is he a holy man? Is he a patient man? Is he a gracious man? Is he a loving man? Does he care for you? Does he pray for you? Does he spend time with you? Does he understand you? Does he love you like Christ loves the church? What would your wife say? If your children were here with you. If your children were here with you and I asked them this question, does your father spend time with you? Does he love you? Does he hug you? Does he teach you? Does he discipline you? Do you know that your father loves you? What would they say? We're talking about practical holiness, personal holiness, and progressive sanctification. Listen, that is your first priority. That is your highest calling. That is your number one responsibility, to care for your own soul. Many men have gifts. Many men have knowledge. Many men have education. But they're not walking with God. They're not conformed to the image of Christ. They're not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. They neglect their soul for the sake of their ministry. Listen carefully. Your first foundational responsibility is your life, your soul, your character, your example. You preach with your mouth and you preach with your words. And if what you say and what you do in every area of life is not more and more consistent, then your ministry will be hindered. You need to burn this into your brain. As I'm trying to burn it into my own conscience, your first priority is to be a man of God. To know God, to walk with God, to live in the presence of God, to have communion with God, 
to be anointed by God, to fellowship with Jesus Christ, to be conformed to His image. Many men come out of seminary, they got a head full of knowledge, they got some gift to speak, but there's no power, no authority, no influence. Why? There's something wrong with the life. There's something wrong with the family. There's something wrong in his soul. So your first responsibility is your life. I know you know that. I know it too. But I need to hear it again today. Let's review some basic things. Our primary point is very simple. Your life, your character, your holiness, your example, your witness must be growing in progressive holiness and sanctification. First point, the necessity. The necessity, listen carefully, when you get old, your mind, like this table. You ever thrown a tennis ball or a basketball up against the wall? What happens? There's going to come a time when your mind's going to be like that wall. And you're going to read the Bible and you're going to forget it. You young men, now's the time. You're lazy, irresponsible, undisciplined, and not willing to pay a price now. 20 years from now, you'll be useless. Now is the time. Don't be lazy. Utilize your mind. Exercise your mind. Read, pray, study, deepen, grow. Your mind is crucial. Why is holiness necessary? If you're not persuaded of this in your own conscience, you'll not pursue it with diligence. Gift is not enough. Knowledge is not enough. Understanding is not enough. I know a lot of men that know a good theology, but they don't know God. I know a lot of men that can tell you the whole chain of salvation from foreknowledge in eternity past to glorification in eternity future, and that's crucial. problem is they don't know Christ, and they're not conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. they got a big head and a skinny body, and you don't want to be that way. Your life and your character is the most important thing. Why is holiness necessary? This is very basic. Number one, because God commands it. According to God's command, God's will, and God's purpose. Let's just look at a few verses here. Now, because our time is short and our subject is big, we'll have to approach this topically by looking at some basic verses and by serving these things in a quick manner, but we want them to be impressed upon our mind and upon our heart. First of all, remember what Peter said, First Peter chapter 1. Let's look at it very quickly, but usefully. We're trying to answer this question. Why is your personal holiness a high priority and your first responsibility? Number one, because God commands it. 1 Peter and chapter 1, very familiar verse. Notice what he says, beginning in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which are yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. For it is written, and he quotes Leviticus here, that he first spoke to the people of God, calling them out of Egypt, setting them apart, putting his love upon them. You are to be holy, for I am holy. 
How does he characterize them? Verse 14, as children born of the Spirit of God, who are characterized by what characteristic? Obedient children. That means what? It means avoiding that which is sinful, and it means pursuing that which is righteous. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy, notice what it says, in all your behavior, not just on Sunday morning, not just here, but in your home, in your heart, with your wife, with your children, in your conscience, and in your life. Every part of your life is to be growing in practical holiness. Why? Because notice the one who called you, he is holy. He calls you with a holy calling, and he calls you to a holy life in all your behavior. So the first reason we are to pursue holiness is our responsibility is because the God that made us, the God that created us, the God that gave us new life by the Spirit of God, who brought us into his family, his purpose for our life is not just that we be saved and go to heaven when we die, but that we grow in progressive holiness while we're on this the world. God called you, commands you to be holy. Number two, it's the will of God. You know the verse, First Thessalonians and chapter 4. We read it earlier. Let's look at it very quickly. Now we're surveying these verses, but we don't want our speed here to cause us to think lightly about what we're saying. First Thessalonians and chapter 4. Paul says this, finally, brethren, we Verse 1, exhort and request you in the Lord Jesus as you receive to us how you ought to walk and please God that you do walk, excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of Christ. For this, verse 3, is the will of God, your sanctification. The first foundational question in regard to what is the will of God for my life is not who I will marry, where I will go, what should I preach? What ministry should I have? The first foundational question that needs to be answered in your life is what is the will of God for my life at a foundational level? It is that I grow in likeness to Christ and I grow in practical holiness. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says what? I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice acceptable to God so that you can prove what is what? That holy and righteous and perfect will of God. Will of God is that you grow in holiness. You know these verses. It is according to God's purpose. One God, three persons, one purpose working together. The Father in eternity past chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. The Son came to earth to accomplish the will of God, and he died on the cross in the place of his people. Number three, the Christ went to heaven, and the Father and Son sent the Holy Spirit to the earth. One God, three persons, one purpose. Ephesians chapter 1. Why did the Father choose us? before the foundation of the world, that we might be what? Holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to what? Be conformed to the image of the Son. The will of God in his electing purpose is not just that we go to heaven. 
It is that we grow in holiness. And remember what Paul says in Titus chapter 2. Look at it very quickly. The work of the Son. Why did the Son come and die on the cross? To deliver us from the guilt and penalty of sin and to free us from the power and dominion of sin and to enable us to walk with God. Titus and chapter 2. Look at verse 14. He gave himself for us. Why? That he might redeem us from every lawless deed, not just from the penalty and the guilt of sin, but from the power, pollution, and dominion of sin. He came to redeem us. That means to pay a price, to free from slavery, and to own possession. Notice what it says. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Verse 15, these things speak, exhort, and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard. The Father chose us to be holy. The Son gave his life to redeem us, not just from the penalty of sin, but to free us from the power of sin and to cleanse us from the pollution of sin. That is redemption. And the Holy Spirit comes to regenerate us, to give us new life, and to enable us by his power to mortify and to put to death the deeds of the body. Look at First Peter very quickly. Now we're serving these verses. You're already familiar with them. Stay with us here as we move quickly. First Peter chapter 1 verse 2. It says, You are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. Three persons one purpose. The Father chose us, the Son redeemed us and sprinkled us with his blood, and the Holy Spirit sanctifies us that we might grow in conformity to and obedience to Jesus Christ. Now burn this into your brain. God chose you to be holy. Christ died that you grow in holiness. The Spirit came not only to give you life, but to enable you by his power to walk in newness of life. Why is holiness necessary? God commands it. It's according to his will. And it's the purpose of the triune God in your salvation. Not just to get you to heaven, but to get you there in a holy frame. Any questions on that point? Do you believe that? Number two, why is holiness necessary? Listen carefully. It's the only way to heaven. It's the only way to heaven. Let's write that down. It's the only way to heaven. You're familiar with the verses. Let's start with Hebrews chapter 12. You know the verse. And verse 14. Look at it quickly. The writer of Hebrews says that we are to pursue two things. Look at it. What's the first thing we're to pursue? Peace with all men. We're to seek the unity of the church. What's the second thing we're to pursue? Holiness. Now the Bible talks about a definitive sanctification or a positional holiness, a practical or progressive sanctification or holiness, or a final sanctification 
our perfect holiness. You understand that? We'll talk about that more in a moment. But which one is he talking about here? Definitive or positional holiness, practical, progressive holiness, or final glorification and holiness? Pursue holiness. Practical, personal, progressive holiness from the time we're converted until the time we're glorified is something that is to be pursued. Now, what does the Bible say here that without that, what will happen? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, does he mean our holiness saves us? What does he mean? If a man is truly converted, if he's been born again by the Spirit of God, he's a new creature in Jesus Christ, and his life will progressively grow over time into the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. And if there is no fruit on the tree, there has been no root in the ground. If there's no superstructure built, the foundation is not there. One is the root, the other is the fruit. True conversion, being regenerate, ushers in a transformed and changed life over time. I remember what Jesus said, is it in Matthew chapter 7, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life? Is that chapter 7? If you want to get to heaven, you've got to go through the right gate and you've got to walk the right road. You understand what he said? Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. What is the gate of salvation? Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will have life. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. We enter into the gate of salvation by repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you step through the gate, there's one road that leads to heaven. What is that road? It's the road of obedience. It's the road of holiness. It's the road of practical sanctification and growth. Now, if you've got a man in your church and he says, well, I've been through the gate. I believe in Jesus. My sins are forgiven. But he's walking. He's walking the broad way. What would you say to him? Examine yourself. If you've really been through the narrow gate, you will walk the straight way. Now, sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps back. Sometimes we fall down. Sometimes we limp along. Sometimes we fall in a ditch. But the true child of God will persevere down the path of progressive practical holiness as the evidence and consequence of true conversion. And it's your responsibility to make sure the people of God, number one, understand what is true conversion as to its conditions, and number two, what are the consequences or the fruit of true conversion? Listen carefully. There's only one way to heaven. It's not a broad way. It's not a wide way. It's not according to a man's own opinion. Many people can baptize, can believe in their head, and yet they've not been changed in their life. And if you are a pastor in a church, you have the responsibility with love and wisdom and sensitivity to be able to understand people's condition and to make sure they have been through that gate and are walking that way. You understand what we're saying? This is the only way to heaven. We're not saying your holiness, your righteousness, or your obedience saves you. What do we say? If you are saved, 
you will grow in holiness, righteousness, and obedience. Now it's characterized by all kinds of experience, all kinds of ups and downs and ins and outs. But if a man had been truly converted, he's a new creature, God gives him a new mind, a new heart, a new will, and a new purpose. And he begins to slowly but surely walk in the way of holiness. There's no fruit on the tree. There is no root in the soul. If he's not walking the highway of holiness, he's not been through the gate of salvation. Let me say it one more time. Your holiness, your obedience, your righteousness practically does not save you. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us plainly, you're saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God so that no one else can work. Everyone knows 8 and 9. What does verse 10 say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God has prepared beforehand. Listen carefully. Good works are not the cause of your salvation. They are the consequence of your salvation. I know you know that, but many people don't understand that. And you have the responsibility again and again to tell them your good works, your righteousness, your coming to church, your baptism, your intellectual understanding does not save you. You're saved by the grace of God through repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ being born again. That's the condition of salvation. And the consequence of salvation is the growing evidence of the new creation. You understand what we're saying. We're not saying your holiness saves you. But we're saying if you are saved, you will progress down the highway of holiness toward heaven. There's one way to heaven. It's through the gate and the narrow way. Any questions on that? You understand what we're saying? I know you know that. The question is this. Can you clearly and plainly Communicate that to others so people can understand their true condition and not be confused about the relationship of faith and good works. Of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and the incomplete practical righteousness of their own life. They need to understand that difference. You have the responsibility. Number three, why is holiness necessary? For leadership. You know this. Familiar with the verses? First Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. I would not look at those passages in detail, but just for a moment, let's quickly look at them. And there are about four major things that Paul emphasizes here. He mentions 14 or 15 characteristics or qualifications, but you could summarize them under four heads. Life, family, gift, and doctrine. You hear that? Life, family, gift, and doctrine. Fourteen or fifteen things are mentioned there. You could summarize them. He must have a blameless life. He must have a well-ordered family. He must have an obvious developing gift. And he must have a growing understanding of right doctrine. Now notice it says in my English Bible, he doesn't say maybe. Uh, it doesn't say if it's convenient. It doesn't say if he feels like it. He says he must be 
blameless. That means when someone looks at his life, they don't say this. Well, Brother Joe's a good man, but. Brother Abdul is a good man, but. If you're going to serve God, there can't be any but in your life and example. To be blameless means not that you're perfect, but that when people look at you, they cannot blame you for anything in the areas of life, in the area of family, in the area of gift, and in the area of doctrine. You understand what we're saying? I trust you will live in those passages. When I was a young pastor, and even today, I often get on my knees for this verse, and I read, and I ask God to search my heart, show me my heart, deal with my sin, show me where I'm failing. Sometimes, that's not enough. So the next thing I do is I sit down with my wife, and we read this passage together. You ever done that with your wife? Ask her this question. Am I blameless? Do I love money? Am I faithful? Am I kind? Am I sober? Am I self-controlled? Do I manage this household? Am I a good witness to those that are without? Try that when you go home. That's the real test. Anybody can look good on Sunday morning. How do you look before your wife and before your children? That's the question. That's the test. Life Family, gift, doctrine. That's what he emphasizes. He doesn't say maybe. Must. I don't know how it reads in Hindi, but I can tell you how it reads in English, and I can tell you how it reads in Greek. It means you've got to do it. No option. Must. Be blameless. Understand what we're saying. Are you living in those verses? Are you examining your life? Are you asking God to search your soul in regards to these characteristics? Very quickly, wise hope. How about this? For usefulness. Fruitfulness. Now, this is all very simple. You never outgrow necessity of searching your heart and dealing with your soul regarding these things. Second Timothy chapter 2. Very familiar verses. Paul uses an illustration. Second Timothy chapter 2. You're very familiar with it. Now in a large house, verse 20, chapter 2, verse 20, you know the illustration. In a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware. You see the verse 20. Some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, it will produce four results. And what are the four results? Look at it. Number one, he'll be a vessel of honor. You see that? Number two, he'll be sanctified. I'm reading from the English. Number three, he'll be useful to the master. You see that? And number four, he will be prepared for every good work. Let me ask you a question. What is the relationship between personal holiness, and practical usefulness. What's the relationship? What's he saying here? The church is the house of God. Christ is the master of the house. All believers, especially the ministers and preachers, 
are the vessels. If you want to be used by God, the vessel must be clean. As I've told you many times, if I came to your house and you offered me some tea and I picked up the cup and I began to drink it and I looked inside of it and a bunch of bugs in there and a bunch of dirt, I would not want to drink it. If you take a dirty glass or a dirty cup and you put pure water in it, what will happen to the water? It will become dirty. Listen carefully. Jesus said, you Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. You Pharisees are like empty graves that outwardly look good, but inwardly are full of dead man's bones. Listen carefully. A holy man's first concern is his inward condition. A holy man's first concern is his inward condition. Jesus said, clean the inside of the cup And then the outside, if you want to be a vessel that is used by God, if you want to be sanctified and set apart, useful to the master, woman goes to her board to pick out a cup to serve tea to her friends. She picks one up and she looks at it. It's full of bugs and dirt. She either washes it out or puts it back, right? She finds one that is clean. Christ is the master of the house. And he will take your life. And the main concern is the inside of the cup. And if the inside is clean, he will be pleased to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And from you, through the word of God, living water coming out, unpolluted by your life, will have an influence on other people. You understand what we're saying? Second Peter, look quickly. We're talking about the necessity of holiness. I trust you already understand and believe these things. But listen carefully. Many men have gift. Many men have knowledge. Many men have education. Many men have a big seminary degree. Many men go to training classes. But they're not growing in practical holiness. Second Peter chapter 1. Look quickly. Now, verse 5, for this reason, apply all diligence to your faith, supply moral excellence, your moral excellence, knowledge. Verse 6, in your knowledge, self-control, your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. Godliness, verse 7, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, look at love, he says. Now, notice carefully verse 8, what does he say? If these qualities are yours and increasing, What will be the result? If you don't have these qualities, what does he say? You'll be useless and unfruitful. If you do have these qualities, you will be useful. You will be fruitful. This is very plain and very simple. Listen carefully. You can go to seminary. You can get a Ph.D. You can know good theology. You can tell me a lecture in theology. But your life and your ministry, you stand up to speak, and your words will come out of your mouth and go right over the edge of the pulpit and fall right to the ground. And it has no influence on people's mind, heart, will, and conscience. What's the problem? Is the problem in the Word of God? What's the problem? There's something wrong here. Jesus said, keep the inside of the cup clean, and the result will be increased usefulness and fruitfulness. Many young men think, well, I've got a big gift. I've got a Ph.D. I know high theology. But they're lying. not growing in practical holiness. You understand what we're saying? It's very simple. 
Very important. Any questions on that point? Is education enough? Is gift enough? Is knowledge enough? Is zeal enough? That's important. But if the foundation is not there regarding growing practical holiness in your life within and without, all that stuff is useless. It's like stacking a bunch of wood on an altar, but there's no fire to fall upon it and ignite it and give heat. And as a lot of men go to seminary, they got a big bag of books, they got a head full of knowledge, they can tell you about God's eternal purposes, and they can explain the difference between justification and sanctification and predestination and election and foreknowledge and adoption and all of these things. Only one thing problem. They don't love their wife. They don't care for their kid. They don't keep a good conscience. They don't walk with God. All the knowledge in the world will not make you useful unless you're not growing in holiness. You listen to these gray hairs. I know this is true. India's greatest need and your church's greatest need is your own holy life. Your greatest sermon your greatest first influence is your life. If what you say and what you do is not the same thing, then your influence will be weak. You understand what we're saying? Any questions so far? This is very simple, but very important. Let's mention one more. Why is holiness necessary? Because uh, let's say it's the foundation of a good example foundation of a good example. The foundation of a good example. Now, I know this is very simple. How do you spell example? E-X what? E-X what? E-X-P. Read it. I'll just abbreviate it. Young man, now's the time. Don't be lazy. Don't be irresponsible. Because there's going to come a time. I used to be able to say book, chapter, and verse. Now I can say book and chapter. Now sometimes I say book. Now I'm reduced to what the writer of Hebrews said. Somebody somewhere said this. Now listen carefully. Don't be lazy. You got one life, one book, one soul, one mind, one ministry, one stewardship, and one day you'll give an account. Because one day when you're about 70 years old, your mind's going to be gone. And you won't even be able to spell properly, much less remember verses. So now is the time. Don't be lazy. Laziness is the curse of many young men. Don't be lazy. Be willing to pay a price. Be a soldier, be an athlete, be a hard-working farmer, Paul said. Listen carefully and be a good example. How did you lead people? By your words and by your life. How did Jesus teach people? How did Jesus influence people? By his words and by his life. You call me teacher and Lord, and so I am, but I gave you an example 
that you should follow. How did Paul influence Timothy and Titus? By his words and by his life. Let's look at several verses. You're familiar with them. The importance of a good example. Listen carefully. You can have the best, highest, and most glorious theology in all the world. But if there's something wrong with your life, you won't have an influence. 1 Corinthians, you know the verse. Chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Every preacher called of God with humility and brokenness of heart ought to be and must be able to say those words. Can you say those words to the people in your church? Look at my life, look at my family, look at my wife, look at my children, look at my money, look at my testimony. Follow me as I follow Christ. How do you influence people? By your words and by your example. If a man has good words, high theology, but a bad example, he contradicts what he's saying. You understand what we're saying? Look in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, and verse 17. Familiar words, brethren, join in following my example. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Paul said, follow my example. Preacher must be able to say that. Chapter 4, look quickly. Philippians chapter 4. Very profound words in chapter 4 and verse 9. He mentions four things by way of influence. What does he say? Verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard. And what's the last thing he says? Seen in me do these things. Now the first three things have to do with what Paul teaches. You understand what we're saying? He said, you've heard what I've said, you receive what I've said, you've learned what I've said, but he said, look at my life. How do you influence people? By your example. Very quickly, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy in chapter 4, especially to young men. Notice verse 12. Let no one look down on your youth world. But rather in speech, chapter 4, verse 12, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those that believe. What did Jesus say to the disciples about the Pharisees? Do what they say, but what? Don't do what they do. People cannot say that. You do what I say, you do what I do. And even as a young man, you can be an example uh, to older people. Notice what he says, and what we say, how we live, how we love, what we believe, and the purity and sanctity of our life is to be an example in every area. Listen carefully, you can't get that in seminary. You can't get that in this class. You can't buy a book on this. You can't read about it and all of a sudden something happens. You've got to live in the secret presence of God and behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and be transformed into that same image from glory unto glory. Very quickly. Brother, what, are we finished? We're past time, right? Now let me, just a couple more verses. Second Timothy. 
Chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul's talking to Timothy. What does he say? Now you followed my teaching, but that's not enough. What else does he say? My conduct, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance. And verse 11, my persecutions and my suffering. Paul influenced Timothy by his life and by his example. If you're going to be a preacher, if you're going to be a pastor, if you're going to serve in the church, you must be able to say those words with a good conscience before God, before your wife, before your children, and before the people of God. You must be able to say those words. You understand what we're saying? One other verse. First Peter, chapter 5, very familiar verses. We're talking about the necessity of holiness as being the foundation for a good example. Why is an example important? Because you influence people and you lead people in two ways. How those two ways? Your word and your example. Your teaching and your testimony. That's how you influence people. Here in First Peter, he's talking to the leaders of the church. And what does he say? Verse 2, what's their responsibility? Shepherd the flock of God among you. You exercise leadership, oversight. Not under fleshly compulsion, but freely by the grace of God. Not for gain, not for money, not for face, not for glory, not to get anything from man, but with eagerness. Notice verse 3, how do you lead them? You don't stand behind them as we heard this morning with a whip and beat them. Not lording it over them, but proving to be an example to the flock. You lead people by your words, your exhortation, your teaching, your example, your life, your testimony, and your witness. And listen carefully, we're trying to answer one simple question right now. Why is personal holiness and growing practical sanctification the most important thing in the life of the preacher? It's because, do you want to obey God? Do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to be a leader? Do you want to be fruitful? Do you want to be a good example? Education is not enough. Gift is not enough. Zeal is not enough. Theology is not enough. The first thing, foundational thing, and the most important thing is your own growing practical holiness. Any questions? You believe that? You really believe that? Is that the number one priority in your life? Not your ministry, not your gift, not your fame, not your reputation, not your knowledge, but your life. Your character, your witness, your testimony. So if I came into your home and talked to your wife, I've told some people here many times, I've preached in one church for 20 years, and on the front row, my wife, my daughter, and my two sons. Now my wife is 70 years old. My daughter is 45. My two sons are 43 and 42. They sat under my preaching for 20 years. They were so close to me when I preached, I'd spit on them. <laughs> they were like this. <laughs> and listen carefully. If I was a hypocrite, they would know that. You hear me? If I was a hypocrite, they would know that. They 
with my wife and three children who are sitting here today. And you ask them this question. Your husband, your father, was he a godly man? Did he love you? Did he care for you? Did he teach you? Did he discipline you? Did he spend time with you? Did he walk within his own house in the integrity of his heart? Did he love you as Christ loved the church? Did he live with you in an understanding way? This is what they would say. My husband and my father, he wasn't perfect. He saw his sin. But he was trying to grow in holiness. And what he preached publicly is what he tried to do right. Men, your first priority, your greatest responsibility is your life. Your character, your testimony, your example, your heart, your mind, your will, your 